0: Soren Kierkegaard said that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom, right? And his whole philosophy was pointed at addressing that anxiety, that we have the freedom of choice, and that can cause us to feel anxious, but we have to embrace that and move forward with our choices. You know, on the other end of the spectrum, Friedrich Nietzsche said that the thought of being a mere plaything of fate is unbearable. Of course, he's talking about having no choice in something. That when something is thrust upon you, it becomes unbearable. And it's something I've been thinking a lot about lately. I had this professor for uh, history of the Vietnam conflict, history of the Vietnam War in undergrad. And he, taught, he was in Vietnam in the early 1960s, and he stayed after it turned into a full-blown war. He was there training the Arvin, or the Army of the Republic of Vietnam. He was a special forces officer, and beyond being a great teacher for the material of the course, he also could offer his personal insights into the conflict in Vietnam. And something he talked about was choice. You know, he said his time in Vietnam was very different than an 18- or 19-year-old kid who was drafted to go fight in Vietnam. He'd chosen to be an army officer. He'd chosen to go to Vietnam. It's is what he wanted to do. And because he chose that, he talked about having a, a much bigger picture of what was happening in Vietnam, as opposed to an 18-year-old, basically, child, right, who was drafted... Into Vietnam and forced to go there and did not want to be there. My father was drafted into the Marine Corps and joined the Air Force to get out of being drafted into the Marine Corps, but was sent to Vietnam and had a terrible experience there, one that he spent decades recovering from because he didn't choose to be there. You know, I, I kind of want to go off on a tangent here about how. Even though when you think there is no choice, you always have a choice. And even sometimes when you think you haven't made a choice, you have made a choice. But I think that would take us too far afield. The reason I bring up choice is because I think a lot of people shun maybe books because it's something they had thrust upon them in school, elementary school, middle school, high school, maybe university, if you attended university and It felt like something you didn't choose to do. But I think we always have to revisit things that we didn't like in the past because we're not static entities, right? We're not the same being that we were 10 years ago. And when we have a choice, maybe this time when we choose to do something, it'll feel different to us. It'll be different. Maybe we'll enjoy it more than we did in the past when it was thrust upon us and we had no choice. Sometimes, also, that's not the case. We have this uh, kind of snack food in Korea called bandegi. It's silkworm larva, basically like little bugs, little larva. They come in a can with uh, this disgusting juice. You know, every so often, every year or so, I give bandegi another try, thinking, you know, maybe I'm different now, maybe it's an acquired taste, and maybe I'm going to like it. Every time I try it, I absolutely loathe it. It makes me gag and I almost throw up. So not everything is like that, right? Not everything we choose is we're going to love. There are things that we will choose that we'll hate. And we can put those down. But I really think many people are turned off by books and reading for enjoyment because it was thrust upon them. It was forced upon them at some time in their lives. And maybe they even have some trauma about that. But reading is important for a number of reasons, both personally and socially. I think it's one of the purest forms of communication, right? Because first of all, it's someone's distilled thought. It's not someone speaking in real time. It's someone who has taken an idea or a thought and distilled it down over time put it into its purest essence and they didn't have anyone else help them do that. Right. And they put it in the written word and then you're the next person in line to consume that. It's a mind meld, right? It's a a direct connection through space and time to the mind of someone else. It's one of the ways we can understand what it is, or maybe even in some small way become another person, crawl inside another person's head. And I think, you know, art can do this. Visual art, painting, I think is a very pure form of art because it's just one person and the other person on the other end is consuming it. But that's just a a brief moment in time. I think the written word is much more expansive and expressive. And I believe it's one of the purest forms of communication. You know, you can pick up a book that's hundreds or thousands of years old and it can ring just as true now as it did 100 or 1,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago or, or, I don't know, maybe 3,000 years ago. You know, you can pick up the existentialists or the Stoics and they're going to hold just as much wisdom, if not more, now than they did hundreds or thousands of years ago. And we can be in direct communication with some of the greatest people who have lived of all time. We can experience what it was like to be a vagrant in 1950s Paris. We can experience what it was like to be living during the fall of Rome. We can travel in time and have direct contact with these people and places and experiences. You know, things like movies are entertaining and they can provide a bit of that insight as well. What it's like to live in another place or another time. As can, you know, documentaries, but it's less pure, right? It's not just one person creating this. It's a team of people. Hundreds or even thousands of people go into that finished product that you're consuming. With a book, it's mind to mind, right? It's a mind meld between two people, the author and the reader. It's also going to enhance the imagination and the ability to visualize things to the reader, right? When you read a book, your brain is constructing images, building scenarios, building entire worlds based on the text. This stimulates our imagination, and it activates regions in the brain that are involved in visual processing, even though the the reader's only looking at words. This is in stark contrast to movies that kind of spoon-feed you what you're seeing and what you're supposed to be feeling and visualizing. Reading also helps with language processing, and it develops your vocabulary. It helps you concentrate and pay attention to things. It, it increases your attention span. It makes you more empathetic. It increases your memory formation and your ability to recall things. It enhances your critical thinking and analysis skills. right? And science shows that when you read, when you engage in complex activities... Like reading, it promotes neuroplasticity or the brain's ability to form and reorganize synaptic connections. I know I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but for those listening that are non readers, I really encourage you this week to pick a book and spend, you know, even 15 minutes or 20 minutes every night before you go to sleep reading a book instead of looking at your phone or watching Netflix. You know, I think movies are also can be high art. But I don't think it's an art form that's meant to be consumed the way a lot of us are consuming it these days, right? Like turning your phone on and binging a whole season of some show or watching three or four or five movies back to back. You know, when I watch a, a really great film, I want to ruminate on it a bit. I want to think about it for a few days. Or maybe even a week or two. Think about what you know, what it means. What was the symbolism in that movie? What is it trying to say? And maybe even go back and revisit that movie in a week or two. Maybe see if there's anything else to unpack. What was the writer trying to say? What was the director trying to convey to us? You know, books move at a much slower pace. We consume them over a longer period of time. So as we're reading, We're asking those questions and exploring those things while we are engaged in the book, right? You might read a book over several days or weeks. So you're actively engaged in that kind of thinking while you're reading the book. So books are great because it's not just You know the time that you're reading. It's the time also that you're away from the book. That that book has changed maybe ever so slightly your perception on the world around you, or at least called into question the way you perceive things, or has given you a new angle to look at the world through, or from. You know, I think another problem with a lot of movies and things like Netflix is who who's creating. This. Well, a lot of the times it's corporations, right? Big conglomerates or corporations where the bottom line is money. And unfortunately, that's also happened in the publishing world, right? You have the big five who are these huge corporate publishers and they're just concerned about the bottom line. That's why they exist to make money. So no longer is it about like getting art. Out there, it's about making money. And it's nowadays, it's many times about who has written the book, not what has been written. So if you are a celebrity or a minor celebrity that can move copies of a book, you're going to get your book published by the big five. If you sit, fit into a certain category, of this month's in vogue identity, then you're probably going to get your book published by one of the big five. Well, that's why I started J New Books, to publish works of literature that weren't getting published elsewhere, right? To publish art for art's sake. And by, by literature, I'm talking about literary nonfiction as well, right? Creative nonfiction that's written in a literary way. We've got seven new books coming out in 2024. You can register interest in our book club. You'll receive one of our books every month in the mail on our website, jnewbooks.com. You can sign up for that, which we will be launching in the spring. You can sign up for free now on the website, and we'll let you know when we're ready to mail you the first book. My, My formal area of training was in political science. And in political science, there's something called the free rider problem that I'm sure many of you are aware of. It's a free rider problem. It exists when an investment has personal costs, but common benefits. And this usually leads to an underinvestment by individuals. Literature is also really important on a societal level. Literature has the power to change society. Not only does it have the the ability to change an individual's perspective and make an individual more perceptive or more introspective to make the individual see the world in different light, it also has that ability on a societal level. It's imperative on a number of different levels that we keep literature alive. We keep alive the art of the written word. And when you buy a book from a corporate publisher like Random House or Penguin, you're not supporting art you're not supporting literature you're not supporting writers you're supporting a corporation that does things solely for profit so head on over to Books, please and subscribe to our book club it won't cost you anything right now if you do not like reading all of our future releases will also be available in audiobook so you can listen to the books as well and you'll receive a new audiobook every month or a new digital book or a new physical hardback or paperback of a new JNU title every month. If you enjoy this podcast, you can also support literature and our press by sharing it with your friends. I think another area we can sometimes have negative feelings towards because we feel as though it was thrust upon us in the past is exercise or sports. I know this was the case with me. Growing up, I was forced to play baseball and peewee football, American football. And I loathed those sports, not because there was anything wrong with them, but because I was made to do them. I played baseball for a long time. And every second spent on the baseball field or diamond or whatever it's called was sheer agony for me. And it turned me off to team sports for a long time. When I I became an adult, I realized that I'm pretty athletic and I got into sports. You know, kickboxing, boxing, jujitsu, and running. I found that I have a real love for walking and running. There's a great book by Haruki Murakami, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running. If you haven't read it, it's a memoir. I, rec- I highly recommend it. It expresses exactly how I feel about running. You know, for me, it's almost like a, it is. It's a meditative practice. You know, it's something that you can get out and do by yourself, and it brings you to a place of, of meditation and solitude where everything else around you melts away. And there's only you in the moment with yourself, and your ideas, and your thoughts. And honestly, walking or running, it's where I have my best ideas, where I have my original thinking, where I feel like I come in contact with some muse or divine presence. You know, lots of great thinkers espouse the benefits of walking. Instead, it's where they came up with their ideas. Henry David Thoreau, Virginia Woolf, Albert Einstein, Charles Darwin, Beethoven, Socrates and Aristotle, Nietzsche, Immanuel Kant. The list goes on and on. So in addition to reading, challenging listeners who aren't actively reading to read this week, I'd like to challenge listeners who aren't actively exercising to engage in some kind of daily exercise for at least 30 minutes. You know, if you're and if you're not used to exercising, especially endurance exercise, like running, it's going to be a pain at first, just like anything else it, it has a learning curve, right or a pain curve. When I first started running, it was painful. one because I didn't really know how to run well. I was just running as hard and as fast as I could for as long as I could, and that's not. Really, a good way to run every day. But two, because things in the beginning are hard. And then once you do it for a few weeks or a few months, it gets easier and easier. And then it gets to a point where it's something that you feel like you need to do to be healthy and happy. You know, it's very similar to learning a language. In the beginning, when you're learning a language, it's extremely difficult. You have to learn vocabulary and grammar patterns. And it seems daunting and sometimes overwhelming. But once you study that language, the more you study it, the more you understand it and the easier it becomes. You know, your knowledge of that language kind of grows exponentially. You can understand words in context. Then you can start speaking about higher level things. And then eventually it becomes second nature. Speaking, reading, listening to that language, you don't even have to think about it. You just do it. I think reading and exercise are the same way, right? If, if you haven't been in the practice of reading, it might be a little hard at first. But once you get going, it's going to become second nature again. And same thing with exercise, you know, running, walking, whatever it may be. It's going to seem like a pain at first. You know, jujitsu is the same way for me. When I started, it was very hard. One, again, because I didn't understand jiu-jitsu, but after years of doing it, I gained a deeper understanding of it and it became second nature. Now it's just like speaking English or reading a book. And I think that's when you can really start appreciating something and enjoying something and having fun with something. When you reach that level of mastery where it becomes just muscle memory and second nature, you know, like running. As I said, when I started running, I was just running as fast as I could, as far as I could, for as long as I could. And it wasn't the right way to run. And as I ran more and came to understand my body more, I paced myself. And I learned about pace. And I learned about how to make myself better at running, and how I should be running, and how I should be running day to day. And once I built up my stamina, and raised my lactic threshold, and was able to run for a considerable distance, it became a meditative practice. You know, now I go up into the mountains, and I run for an hour or so, and my mind is somewhere else. It's not on the running. It's thinking about ideas, and concepts, and books, and films. I really encourage everybody, if you're not actively exercising, give it a try this week. Pick something and do it every day for 30 minutes. It's going to have a great effect on your life. It's going to improve your life significantly, as will reading. I think in today's society, especially Western society and American society in general, we have that existential anxiety that Kierkegaard talked about that is brought on by choice, by almost an unlimited or infinite number of choices that we have in America when we're young, or at least we're we're told that we have that, right? When we're young, our parents and teachers, they tell us, this is America, you can be anything you want to be. Well, for some people, that choice induces anxiety. It's overwhelming. And then furthermore, when you get older, and you're not a rock star or the president of the United States or governor of Massachusetts or whatever it may be, well, then we also have this anxiety brought on by what did I do wrong? You know, what was wrong with me that I didn't become what I wanted? I could have become anything. They told me that all along. You know, and again, it goes back to choice or the illusion of choice. Many people I believe in America are unhappy because they feel like they've not chosen what they're doing. You know, I've not lived in America since 2008. So when I I go back to America, I often experience reverse culture shock. And I recently went back for the holidays, the first time in four and a half years. Like I said, I've not lived in America since 2008. So I'm when I go back to America, I always feel like I'm a kind of a time traveler, kind of a kind of time capsule of America in 2008. I'm not an American in 2024. I'm an American from 2028. And I can see every time I go back how drastically America has changed. And one thing I noticed this time back, well, there were two things that really stood out. And the first was just kind of a all-pervasive hopelessness that i saw in general society in just people in convenience stores or on the street people just felt down and out and hopeless and i think part of that is people feel like they don't have a choice they don't have a choice in what they're doing they don't have a choice in where they're living anymore you know, in my hometown of Royers Ford, Pennsylvania, we had this new, tr- and neighboring towns, there's this new trend of building these mega apartment complexes. Now, in 2008, this would have been unthinkable, right? Because people lived in houses. This was suburbia. People didn't live in apartments, and people didn't want apartment buildings in that town. Well, now we have several, and in the town next to it, Phoenixville, There are mega apartment complexes everywhere and more coming. So people can no longer own a house. People no no longer feel like they have a choice of where they're going to live. You're going to live in this apartment where they tell you to live, what you can afford. And again, it goes back to choice. You know, my grandfather, my father's father, went to university. He was from the greatest generation, You know, the World War II generation. He went as a Marine to Guadalcanal and fought in World War II He came back, got a college education, was a white-collar guy. And he really pressured my dad into taking over the family business. And my dad wanted nothing to do with it. My grandfather really wanted my father to go to college, to university. And if he had been given a choice, he may have. But he chose to become a blue-collar worker. Not because that's what he wanted to do, but because he could make the choice to do that, right? Now, someone else who didn't have a choice to go to university and was forced into becoming a blue-collar worker might not be happy doing that. And I think that's what we're looking at in America today. A lot of our choice has been taken away. And a lot of the choice that we were told we had never really existed in the first place. And I think this is, has this is caused a lot of people in society to short circuit, right? I saw this video clip a few weeks ago of this woman claiming that she had ADHD time blindness, and she needed special accommodations at school or at work because she could not be on time. You have whole swaths of our society that are now buying into this idea that we do not have any choice in our lives, right? So, if you claim, well, I'm this way because I have ADHD, time blindness, you're claiming you have no choice in being late to a job or to work. You can see it in things like the wholesale adoption of DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's saying that whole swaths of people can't do anything on their own. They don't have the ability to get to university on their own, they don't have the ability to get a job on their own. They need assistance because they have no choice. But we do have a choice and we do have to face responsibility. You know, it all comes from Kierkegaard's existential anxiety, the anxiety of choice. And I think so many people in our society today are paralyzed by that choice. They then say, I don't have a choice. I don't have a choice. I can't. I I have ADHD time blindness or I have this wrong with me or that wrong with me. I can't do it. And then I think we have a whole nother area of society that doesn't have a choice and it doesn't run along racial lines. It runs along socioeconomic lines. These people actually don't have a choice. They're born into poverty, such crippling pro- poverty, that it's almost inescapable. You're not going to get out from under that weight. And Although the two groups have different causal mechanisms, the end result is still the same. People who feel like they have no choice. And on my recent visit to America, that's what I saw. A lot of people who were hopeless because they felt like they had no choice in life. But we always have choices. You know, another thing that I frequently find myself telling my students and my children occasionally is that If you're not happy now, you're never going to be happy. You know, and it sounds cliche, like an old tired trope, but really, happiness comes from inside of us. If we're looking for external things to make us happy, then we're never going to be happy. And for me, two of those things, two keys to contentment and happiness are books and exercise. I don't think it's a coincidence that in real dire situations, when everything else is stripped away, that these are the things that people rely on, right? Literature and exercise. Think about prison. You know, people who can successfully reform in prison, what do they take refuge in, right? They take refuge in books and exercise. I recently watched Saltburn. And like all good film or art, it got me thinking. And I've been thinking about that film since I watched it for the past three or four days. And something that it got me thinking about was the ancestral family home. And how in Korea and in the West, that has totally gone out the window. But I think it's an idea that needs to be revisited, right? Because homeownership has become impossible for so many in the West, not just in America, in Europe as well, and in Korea. But in Korea and in America and more so in Europe, Korea and Europe, Classically, there was the idea of the ancestral home, and it wasn't just with nobility. It was across the board that a home and land were inherited and passed on to the next generation, inherited by and passed on to the next generation. And it's something that seems completely lost, and it's something that I think would benefit our society greatly to bring back. Now, I think in order to do this, we need to kind of reimagine what a house is and what a property is. And we can't churn out these cookie-cutter tract housing developments that are built for a single family or churn out these mega apartment complexes that are meant for a transient population that doesn't have a vested interest in an area. You know, one reason why housing is unaffordable is because of speculative buying, right? Or landlordism, people flipping houses, people owning 10, 15, 20 houses, people buying beautiful old Victorian houses and carving them up into apartments. Companies like the Toll Brothers who are responsible for the tract housing that so egregiously has sucked up all of our open spaces are now erecting these mega apartment complexes. And the more this speculation goes on, the harder it becomes for people to own houses or property. Of course, it's just common sense. The more people are buying homes and houses and investing in that market to make money, the less it's going to be a utilitarian market. right? So people are making money on a necessity of life. And the more money they make, the more money they want to make. The more money these corporations make, the more money they need to generate. So it becomes about profit, not about living. Not about something that's necessitous for life. I think this also has a very detrimental effect on society when we have no more connection to a place, right? So if you're living in an apartment, or you're living in a rented house, or even if you're living in a Toll Brothers cookie-cutter tract housing development, you have less of an attachment there to someone who's living in a multi-generational home that has been passed down for three or four or five or hundreds of generations. You don't care about that. If you're living in one of these new mega apartment complexes, you don't really care about where you're living because you don't have a vested interest in that. You're a transient so it, it kind of eats away at the very fabric of our society. I remember in the 1980s, you know, the mid-80s, growing up and hearing my aunts and uncles talk about, and my parents talk about communism and why it was so bad and, and how terrible it would be to live in the Soviet Union or in East Germany, where you can't own anything. You can't own land. Everybody lives in apartments. You have no connection to that place. And now that's what America has become, or what it's quickly on the way to becoming. And instead of the government owning everything, right, you have a rich section of society who owns everything, and everyone else has to bow down to them to be allowed to have a home, a house or an apartment. Now, I think one solution to this is to bring back the idea of the ancestral family home, right? A home that's passed on from generation to generation. And property in a home that's maybe built in a way to contain several generations with several buildings or houses or a house that's constructed in a way to allow that. Housing prices in a lot of places in the United States are completely insane. But it's even more insane that every generation is expected to take out a mortgage on one of those houses if they want to have a place to call their own, right? So you're supposed to take out a half a million dollar loan that you're going to be paying off for the rest of your life if you want to have a place to live. And then what usually happens? What usually happens is you, you raise a family in that house, And then the family moves away and the parents get old. One of them dies and one of them is left behind and it's too much house for them. So they sell the house and maybe they move into like a community of 55 plus. Or maybe their health isn't so great. So they move into a nursing home where someone's going to take care of them all the time. So that house, the family home is gone. So now the children have to repeat that process. And then it's going to repeat with the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. It's complete insanity. You know, recently, my oldest friend, oldest childhood friend, who I'm still friends with today, his mom and my mom grew up together. We were also the same age. So we knew each other from the time we were infants. And he spent a lot of time at my house as a child, and I spent a lot of time at his house. His house was a beautiful brick home built by his grandfather. Who owned a local car dealership. And recently that house was torn down. Now, this house was not in disrepair. It was a beautiful house. One of the brick house built in kind of a uh, craftsman style. It had, you know, the, the laundry chutes in it. I remember sliding down the laundry chutes as a child. A very beautiful house. With nothing wrong with it. It was purchased by an orthodontist and knocked down. And I'm sure the orthodontist is going to build some eyesore there, right? It's not going to be a beautiful family home anymore. And I think this kind of shines a light on the problem where business and money is the central focus of our society and of so many other societies that we're not valuing the things we should be valuing anymore. Like a family home It should be passed down from generation to generation. And if we did this, if we built homes in such a way that could house multi-generations, it would solve a lot of our other problems, right? We wouldn't have people having to move into nursing homes and spending their twilight years alone. We could take some of the fuel off the fire of this speculative real estate market, right, if every generation didn't provide a new crop of buyers to be harvested by real estate agents, developers, and bankers. You know, the practice of primogeniture or passing on the property to the eldest born son went out of vogue in the West. And it went out of vogue supposedly for several reasons. You know, it was unegalitarian. People wanted to bring in a system that was more fair, But I don't think the system we're currently living under is any more fair than that, right? At least there, you had someone who was responsible for the estate, it passing on to the next generation, and also who was responsible for making sure that estate, in one way or the other, whether the siblings lived there or were taken care of by money provided by that estate, either through the refinancing or money that the estate made— They were responsible for providing for their siblings. We need to have a connection to the places that we live. They shouldn't be places we're just passing through for the moment. Because we'll spend our whole lives just passing through places with no connection to a place. And once we lose people that have a connection to a place, well then that place also disappears. It loses its character. It loses its personality. It becomes just another corporate blip on the map. And our first reading today, it's why I really love it. It's why I really love this author. He has a connection to a place, a deep connection. And it comes through in his writing. Our first story today is by Dave Newman. He's an assistant professor of creative writing and professional writing at Pitt Greensburg. Dave Newman is the author of seven books, including The Same Dead Songs, A Memoir of Working Class Addictions, J. New Books 2003, East Pittsburgh Down Low, J. New Books 2019, The Poem Factory, White Gorilla Press 2015, the novels Raymond Carver Will Not Raise Our Children, Writers' Tribe Books 2012, Two Small Birds, Writers' Tribe Books 2014, Please Don't Shoot Anyone Tonight, World Parade 2010, and the collection, The Slaughterhouse Poems, White Gorilla Press 2013, named one of the best books of the year by *L* Magazine. His stories, essays, and reviews have appeared in Gulf Stream, Volume One, Brooklyn, Belt, The Legendary Nerve Cowboy, Smoke Long Quarterly, Ambit, UK, Tears in the Fence, UK, The Pittsburgh Post Gazette, and many other places. He appeared in the PBS documentary narrated by Rick Sabach about Pittsburgh writers. He's the winner of numerous awards. He lives in Trafford, PA, the last town in the Electric Valley, with his wife, the writer, Laurie Jekela, and their two children. Here's an excerpt from Dave Newman's The Same Dead Songs, a memoir of working-class addiction. I assume Anthony is still alive and still drunk and still high, but maybe not. He could be dead in any number of places by any number of means. Tonight is Tuesday. Anthony showed up on Saturday, messy drunk and holding a half snorted bag of cocaine, his only collateral, his last bit of status. I was away for a couple of hours when he arrived. My wife called and tried to explain who was at our home. Grown men, family, friends, possibly an old enemy, small children. She sounded uncomfortable and willed herself towards compassion. She knew Anthony, how fucked up. I figured drugs were involved. She asked when I would be home. I stood with my phone outside my car near the 10th Street Bridge. The Monongahela River sounded loud as ocean waves. The streetlights saved the city from darkness, but barely. Young people in all kinds of cars search for decent parking spaces so they could pile out and rush the bars and slug booze and flirt and fight. I've lived in Western Pennsylvania my whole life. This is about that only because everything I write starts and ends here. 2. Anthony is in his early 40s. My big brother's age. I'm in my late 30s. This goes back. We grew up in the same neighborhood. On the same street, I see Anthony so seldom. I wish I saw my brother more. I wish my brother lived close. I wish Anthony something. The ghosts of childhood and geography and the working class bind us like nails in a board, like drink in a glass. Or those things do not bind us at all. I mean Anthony and what it's like to drift and fall. I love my brother dearly. I'm so proud of his successes. 3. My brother lives in Michigan. He works in industrial sales and moved from where we'd grown up to be closer to Detroit in the auto industry and the chance to make a decent living. Our dad migrated to Michigan for similar reasons almost 30 years ago. He'd worked in a factory and the factory closed and Detroit still had factories. This happened while I finished high school. My mom stayed behind so I could graduate. That summer, she sold the house, and we spent a couple weeks filling boxes. Movers came in August. I headed to college. My mom headed to Michigan. My brother finished college, then took a bad-paying job, accepting transfers and small promotions all around Western and Central Pennsylvania until it was an average-paying job. I needed more, and I need more, but somehow I always managed to stay. The word home is undefinable. But the rolling green hills and the endless variety of trees from the woods of my childhood and the sound of water running from creeks into rivers and the shortcuts I've driven for decades, sometimes taking dirt over pavement, and the bars I've drank in, gotten drunk in, and the restaurants that make great food and refuse trends, the people I've known since birth and have never lost contact with, the people I've met through bad jobs, and the help we've shared, the way trains roll on, the way shovels spine dirt, the houses made of bricks and the cracks and the cinder blocks that need to be filled. And who will fill them? And when? And how will they find the time? It all matters more than any career opportunity or chance for better business. Because of home, a word that endlessly stacks itself with meaning. I live here with a love inherent, but also with a love that requires great effort. I live here to write about it, to say this place matters. Down the road from my neighborhood, the skeleton of an old Westinghouse plant remains. The windows busted out, the doors locked or knocked off their hinges. Graffiti, broken glass, rocks, trees falling, weeds growing. The factory sits on cracked pavement near a creek. They're still trying to unpollute. I remember the people who worked there and their losses. Sometimes I imagine their stories on my evening exercise loop while I force my heart to pound and my lungs to breathe deeper, and my legs to pump, and I dream, and create, and imagine. When I walk, I know where I walk. When I want something new, I walk farther. Four, my brother came in last Saturday with his kids, so the cousins could play while we drank, and told stories, and listened to music, and finished the night with a giant meal. I enjoy his visits immensely. I love my niece and nephew, Love them hanging out with my kids. Everybody stays up late, movies, video games. The next day, we hit the park or do something fun and stop for chicken fingers and french fries and goofiness. You should see my niece's impersonation of Bing Crosby, the way she sings and then throws a punch. I've been looking forward to this visit for a month or more. When my brother showed up with his kids and a small suitcase and a cooler filled with craft beers from local breweries in Michigan he wanted me to share, he parked on the street in front of my house. He knew I was in the city proper and would be home shortly. While heading to a bar, Anthony drove by my house and spotted my brother's car. What he hoped was my brother's car. His oldest friend's car. It was more like a feeling. It was more like a feeling. Anthony knew my brother drove company cars. And those cars could change randomly, but they all still looked like company cars. This sedan was red. The last sedan was burgundy. Anthony had been drinking all day, and possibly for days. He circled back and parked in front of my neighbor's house. He sneaked across the street and peeked in my front window. Imagine you're my brother. Imagine you're a man with a good job, with kids he loves, with a wife back at home, and you're standing in your little brother's house, waiting for him to show up, hanging with your sister-in-law, and a gaggle of small children, all family, enjoying the moment, excited for the moments to come, and suddenly you notice one of your childhood friends with his face mashed to the glass like a burglar. This is how our Saturday night begins. Five, I've been getting interviewed for a local radio program that focused on books. It aired at an awful time. at six in the morning on the weekend or something like that. Very few listeners tuned in, even fewer cared. I sat with a host in a little booth, a shared microphone between us. I couldn't tell if she'd read my book and didn't like it or if she hadn't bothered to read it. I drank a lot of water and read part of a chapter. I tried not to swear. I'd been told not to swear. The interview took place on the occasion of my first novel. I pretended like it mattered. I don't pretend that anymore. 6. My brother and Anthony sort of kept in touch. Meaning Anthony sometimes called my brother when he was loaded. The years and miles created distance. Their ideas about family and careers created distance, physical and emotional. Occasionally, within the last few years, they'd made concrete plans, usually to meet at my house, my brother was back in Pennsylvania, then to head out somewhere, a local bar. But the fun of that had passed. Anthony's struggles made it difficult to have a normal relationship. He kept unusual hours. Getting coffee was not an option. Sharing a pizza was not an option. Politely refusing to kick in for an eight ball was the new reality. Lots of Anthony's activities revolved around gambling, especially sports betting, which meant TVs and screaming at TVs and cheering at TVs and even kissing TVs if the right team made the right move and scored the correct number of points. His drinking could be sloppy and endless. Sometimes he had money, other times he didn't. A couple of years ago, Anthony showed up in Michigan, unannounced, buzzed, but not hammered, almost broke, probably enough money to pay for gas and tolls on the way home, but in good spirits, apologizing for the interruption, treating himself like a postcard he'd written and mailed instead of a physical body on a doorstep. My brother invited him in. My brother's the kind of person who invites people in. It was the weekend. They drank both nights. While Anthony slept in, my brother woke early to take his kids to sports and do domestic things, grocery shopping and car washing, picking up dry cleaning. Sunday afternoon, the day before Anthony planned to leave, my brother took him to a restaurant, trying to be generous, trying to be adult and civilized. But food had started to become a problem for Anthony, a roadblock to drinking. He ordered some cheese sticks and avoided them to guzzle beers and vodka. My brother pushed aside his burger and gave over to the inevitable drink. They stared at TVs above the bar and watched football and swapped stories from high school and college, which seemed tedious because Anthony lived like he was still in high school or college, only worse. All destruction, no learning. I asked my brother, do you think he'll keep showing up like that? My brother said, he won't come back. I said, I bet he will. My brother said he had to look at me all weekend while we drank. He definitely will not show up like that again. I pictured faces. I pictured minds trying to understand truth and how truth was like a rod of steel pulled from a furnace and held by men with fireproof gloves. Bars that bend and can be bent. Friendship is inescapable until it's no longer friendship. Seven. I parked in my driveway, feeling dread, but nothing immense, still planning to enjoy my brother's weekend visit. I gathered up a couple copies of my novel and some poems I hadn't had time to read during the interview, shuffled everything, then stuffed them inside my leather bag. Nobody in my house cared that I wrote books but my wife. I was happy she loved what I wrote. She wrote her own brilliant books, and we built a life from our shared love of words and story. In October, the nights here in Pennsylvania are dark and black as a cat. I tried the front door, and it was unlocked. Anthony sat on the couch, leaning forward, rocking. Hey, he said, his voice sad but optimistic. He understood no one wanted to see him anymore, yet he remained hopeful that someone still did. He dressed in cut-off sweatpants and a t-shirt, a baseball hat, and running shoes. He was thin, with the bubbled-out eyes of an alcoholic. When he breathed, you could hear it. I wanted him to leave, but I knew it was wrong to ask. Eight. My brother sat on the edge of a wicker chair, nursing a beer he clearly didn't want to be drinking. He wore sweatpants and a big t-shirt, comfortable weekend clothes, an outfit to escape the endless ties and slacks his job required. He dressed basically like Anthony, two fashionably challenged adults. But you could tell who was healthy and who was not. One did drugs for breakfast. One took clients to lunch, skinny and not. Neither one believed in exercise. I looked at my brother. He looked at me and made his eyes shrug. Another guy, a drug dealer, waited in my bathroom doing a bump of cocaine. Nine. Hey, I said, and shook Anthony's hand. He tried to turn the handshake into a hug, but I politely resisted, so he ended up in a weird arm dance ending with some shoulder pats. He sat back down on the couch and immediately went to sleep, but only for a couple seconds. He had a wife and a kid somewhere. I had a wife and kids somewhere, somewhere in this house. I wondered if he had to be home, if he even acknowledged that he was a father and a husband anymore. He slowly sat back down like someone was trying to hide the couch. I thought, my beautiful wife. In moments of stress and conflict, I feel my wife and know that the world is worth living in. I should probably tell her more thank you. But she knows my love for her is endless. Sometimes we play music so loud, our house sounds like a parade, and we march everywhere. My brother and I hugged. He said in sort of a whisper, Is he on dope? I said, I think he's just exhausted. Anthony woke and said comically, Hello, ladies! Then immediately closed his eyes. Ten. I've known Anthony my entire life. I remember watching him play basketball on the peewee league team before I was old enough to dribble. Dude could score. Dude could throw a baseball and hit for power. I remember him behind the elementary school, drinking beer. I remember him in high school with a bottle of Mad Dog throwing up. Then in college, with a plastic cup waiting at the keg. I remember him in bars, happy then in bars breaking whiskey bottles against walls. He got kicked out of college. He finished college. He worked as an accountant. He worked in the Sony plant making TVs using a rivet gun. He started gambling. Before that, he started doing blow. He figured out how to beat a drug test. He worked as a postman. Please allow me to switch to present tense to Saturday. I ditch my leather bag filled with copies of my novel and the small pile of poems. I head to the kitchen and grab a beer and chug while Anthony and my brother make small talk in the living room. I finish the beer and grab another. My wife is somewhere with all the kids, downstairs or locked in a bedroom, letting them bounce on her head. The drug dealer in the bathroom is named Enzino Ricci. He still hasn't come out. I punched Enzino in the head a lot of times, 20-some years ago. I take my second beer and head to the living room. Eleven. My house is a ranch. I've been trying to turn it into a library for years. If I didn't have kids, I'd burn most of the furniture and learn to build bookshelves. Our couch is old. Our sofa is newer, but we bought it used. Everything looks bounced upon by small children. I hope it does not look puked upon and scrubbed clean, but it could. Our bookshelves are made of real wood. Stained walnut brown and sturdy, nearly reaching our low ceilings, and they look great. Bought at Ikea, on sale. The only chair in the living room is a thing my wife picked up from the side of the road in a moment of shame and exhilaration. The chair sat at the end of someone's driveway in a nearby neighborhood, a free sign on it, and she jammed it into her trunk and drove off. When she brought it home, she said, come on, seriously, because I didn't want a chair with herpes in my living room. She said, it looked better sitting there. Uh, I panicked. And I said, college professor steals chair from driveway, making up a headline. And she said, there was a free sign. And sighed while I found a place for our very used, completely germy chair. Everyone thinks my wife makes great money because she teaches college. But she makes average money because her college is a branch campus that pays professors less than what public school teachers make in poor districts. No problem, except on payday. She loves her students and teaching books and feels lucky to make a living in the place she was born. I'm telling you, western Pennsylvania is a miracle. Please don't move here. 12. Anthony sits up and appears lucid. He rubs his face and adjusts his nose. Most of the night, he will adjust, buff, and caress his nose. Now he wants to talk about the police his most recent interaction with them, and he genuinely wants to understand what happened. He appears childlike while he tells the story, animated, confused, seeking a genuine path to comprehension. I swear, as he talks, his skin becomes healthier, and he looks less pasty, less boozed out and druggy. Recently, he parked at a police station, walked inside and said, help me please, mistaking the police for clergy, for mental health professionals. He parked in the chief's parking space. He smelled like booze, and there was puke on his collar. The police never offered help. People with guns seldom do. Instead, they explained why it was a bad idea to show up hammered at a police station and park in the chief's spot. Then they arrested him and took his breath with a tube. The results came back immediately, so they charged him with a DUI and put him in a holding cell and gave him one phone call. Anthony says, Does this make sense? Not really, I say. My brother says, All except the part where you pulled into a police station, bombed out of your mind, and asked for fucking help. He stands up and stretches. He sometimes moves like a man who sits for a living, always trying to uncurl his spine. Anthony says, But they're police. Exactly, I say. What the police did makes sense because they're police. What you did makes no sense because you were smashed and they were police. Anthony says, I don't see it like that, but not angry. My brother says, maybe you should. This is the thing about where we live. You can still speak some semblance of truth. 13. Anthony no longer keeps a job. At his last job, he crunched numbers and drank Listerine mouthwash in his breaks because Listerine is 25% alcohol, 50 proof, like a shot of snobs, but less boozy, more minty fresh. He has moved from unemployed to unemployable. He worries a lot about his liver. He sometimes touches his side where he thinks his liver bulges. When you're worried about your liver, it's hard to find work. Fourteen. Two things I worry about most in the world are money and my kids. Not always in that order. I want to write a million books. I want those books to become films. I want my wife to write a million books and her books to become films, and I want her to be covered in joy. None of those things are my concerns. I wake up and find time within my days to do them, write and dream and support my wife and her writing, usually by skipping a few hours of sleep or cheating at one of my jobs. But my focuses are money and children, how to combine both and find a better future. Nothing feels stranger than talking to a person with other concerns. When I see Anthony on booze and coke and without cash, Wandering through the netherworld of bars and drug dealers, I wonder about his family. I wonder about his wife. I wonder about his kid. I mostly wonder about his kid. Fifteen. I stand up and head to the kitchen to grab another beer. Enzo, the guy who deals drugs, the guy reportedly doing blow, steps out of the bathroom and instantly gives me a hug. Big and warm and long and sincere. So sincere. I want him to leave too. Instead, I hug him back. It feels better than expected. I saw Enzo 15 or more years ago, and the energy coming from him feels more like sunlight than the usual creepy violent sword he used to radiate and project. We stop hugging, and Enzo takes my shoulder and gives me a friendly shake. More like he's my dad, proud of my accomplishments. Good job, buddy. Hello, I heard you wrote a book. But, thank God, with no intention of reading my book, because Enzo doesn't read books. He says, You hear I quit drinking? I did not, I say. Too fucking much, he says. I wrecked my fucking car, and it turned my foot backwards. And he gestures with his hand to show how his ankle broke. I politely glance at his nose, but not like I'm glancing at his nose. Not like I'm judging. Not like I'm trying to see if his nostrils are lined with blow, or are all red and irritated, which is exactly how I'm glancing. Detective. Finder. Judger. But nothing. Clean nose. Bright eyes. He looks good all over. Fat. A little gray. A neatly shaved goatee on his chin. Black rimmed glasses. A nice leather jacket. He looks healthy and happy. The opposite of how I remember Enzo. What I expected was dead or worse. Still violent. Still fighting. Years ago, he'd been in jail for assault. He'd been in jail more than once. He stabbed a man in the head with a fork. He'd broken a bottle over someone's head. I told you I punched him back in 1989, my senior year of high school. Enzo was a senior at another school, but he should have graduated a year or more ahead of me. Every place he attended had kicked him out. His reputation for trouble was huge. This was the Mike Tyson era, when a hard punch was desired, when a reputation for trouble was coveted. One night, I ended up at a party where Enzo was drinking. One of my friends said, that's Enzo Ritchie, then immediately added, we should leave. We didn't leave. We'd driven a lot of miles to drink and meet girls from other schools, so we drank. A few girls talked to us. One of the girls knew someone who knew me, so we started flirting. It was fun, despite the lingering presence of Enzo and his reputation. The keg of beer tasted warm and awful. Always more prepared for a party than the future, I had a beer on ice and a cooler in the car. I asked the chick I was talking to if she'd rather have a cold Coors Light in a bottle, and she looked like I'd offered her gold. We started moving through the party to the door. Enzo honed in on me, for some Enzo reason, which means no reason at all. I was there. I was fightable. I'd accidentally made eye contact. He'd overheard my comment about cold Coors Light. He'd not overheard my comment about icy beer. Whatever. He said, What the fuck are you looking at? And jerked his head violently, like his fist might follow. I was prepared. I'd grown up prepared. I stopped walking and said, Don't look at me again. Ever. Don't even fucking glance at me. And we stood there. He laughed tough and turned away, like he hadn't just singled me out. The girl took my hand. We headed to my car and the beer. We drank for a while, but I was distracted and not charming. I dreaded Enzo, thinking he could hang over everything in my life for weeks until graduation. I chugged a beer, and the girl said, Did you just chug that whole thing? Well, I do baby sips. And she showed a baby sip, then baby burped and laughed. This went on, flirting, drinking. Eventually, Enzo stepped from the house. A few other kids stood around the driveway and yard, drinking, laughing. If I was going to fight, I wanted it to be off somewhere else, somewhere private. I wanted it to be honest. Enzo said, why'd you say that shit? And I said, I told you not to look at me. This time, he didn't look away. I pointed to the trees across the street and said, over there, just me and you. I'm going to kick your fucking face off. I took my beer and he followed. Then something strange happened. Enzo started making jokes, saying he was just kidding around. We walked around the block. Enzo grew friendlier with every step. Or maybe, I mean, faker. More of a poser. A pretender. He was trying to get out of fighting by being funny. By explaining away his assholeism as a misunderstanding. Just like how I wanted to get out of fighting by making it absolutely clear that I would fight and win. Refusing to fight was death. Dignity required action. I barely spoke while we walked. And when we made it back to the driveway... He kept on motoring until he made the house while I stayed outside. The girl said, aren't you scared of him? He's a fucking psychopath. And I said, nah, and smiled. Cool as I could look. The next week, Enzo sucker punched me in a McDonald's parking lot. Somehow, I didn't drop. Somehow, I threw a punch. Somehow, he ripped my shirt off. I was shirtless in a McDonald's parking lot in Greensburg, surrounded by other teenagers, all of us afraid, some of us willing to fight, some of us fighting. Somehow, either by instinct or the desire to survive, I managed to grab Enzo's head, all that long black hair, and pulled his face down while launching my knee up. When he dropped to the pavement and tried to cover up, I punched the back of his head until a cop showed up and pulled me off. I had pals around me. I was a kid, scared of Enzo and the world, adults, cops, jail, but I had pals, all scared of Enzo Ritchie, but all loyal, all caring. Shout out to Dave Snyder, who handed me a shirt to wear. Shout out to Cookie Crumbles, who backed me up eternally. Shout out to Robbie Morgan, who put me up in his bedroom and wiped the blood off my face and nose. The cop said, you could have killed him. The cop wore street clothes, He lectured me about hitting Enzo. Not someone, Enzo. Maybe he wasn't a cop. Maybe he was waiting for the moment to knock my head off. Maybe he was a fucking doctor, a medical professional. Maybe he was Enzo's older fucking cousin. Or his great-uncle. I was 18, confused. I knew this would go on for years. 16. I think this is a fight story. And a drug story. And a survival story. And a growth story, which also means a story about not growing. But definitely a fight story. It's funny writing this after years of being involved with the arts. Almost a couple of decades after getting a master's degree in poetry writing. Something I never mentioned because it embarrasses me to have paid tuition to listen to people tell me what I could and could not write. And what styles were acceptable to portray my experiences. I mean, please, name the magazine where you can publish a fight story. I mean, how do you explain punching to someone who has neither punched nor been hit, let alone stood up afterwards, let alone spit blood and not minded? How do you explain punching to someone who wants to erase the body? Here's my impersonation of a grad student glancing at my memoir in a slush pile. Look at this story about toxic masculinity, followed by a deep dramatic breath. Then the comment, we should find out where he works and totally get him fired. If you're enjoying the same dead songs, you can find it at jnewbooks.com or anywhere that books are sold. Our next story is a poem by Adam Macho, who writes Out of Pittsburgh. He's published several books, Ask Your Undertaker, 2002 by WPA Press, and The Novelty Essays, 2013 by WPA Press. Petra from work by Adam Oxto. Management called her over the loudspeaker. Petra, please come down to the hardware department immediately. It was her husband, John. No shoes, jeans half down, disoriented. A dead vegetable scent all over the store. He knocked over the garbage can display, and Petra asked me if she should leave and drive him home. He can't do this here where I work, she said. Her broken accent from a land near Russia or Romania, somewhere far from Pennsylvania, where we work in a grocery store. A manager told her, clock out and please take care of that. That was John, who had two heart attacks and had been in bad health ever since. Petra said he'd been on so many pills ever since. Petra's thin hand shook at the time clock, so I slid her card for her and she said, I don't know if I'll be here tomorrow. I still breathed the musty odor John left when my shift ended a half hour later. Unexpected traffic had me cursing cars, weaving to see what had us backed up. A broke-down, rusted-out pickup pulled to the shoulder had us down to one lane. I passed and saw Petra from work pacing and petting a small brown terrier. John's jeans were around his knees. His hands clutched the guardrail. While he hunched over the side, talking shit to the ground, I parked. My friend Lori told me, Kindness is when you help someone who can do absolutely nothing for you. Lori says wise things like that. She knows about pain because she knows about kindness. I didn't want to stop. My shift was 10 hours long and my family had dinner on the table. Our truck, Petra cried. It just stopped. We have dinner in the back and John does this business now. John's business was spitting into the gravel and shouting, Show it to me! To nobody. Or maybe somebody. Maybe he was wailing at the world in general. All the way to hell. I wanted to help, but didn't know how. I could smell John stronger than before. It was a scent like the dirt that worked itself under your nails and stuck there. Here's what I can do, I said. Petra, give me the dog. You check what's going on with John. She dropped the terrier into my arms, and he shivered until he snuggled. I said, what's his name? Petra said Brutus. I said, it's okay, Brutus. The dog had the smell all over my clothes as I soothed Brutus and brushed the ash smashed into his fur. Petra pulled her husband's pants up, tightened his belt, and attempted to get him back to the truck. "'We can go sit in there,' she said. "'There's nothing for you to see out here in the dirt. "'It's all in the truck. "'Petra,' I said, "'is it okay if I call the cops?' "'I always ask others before I call the police. "'I told 911 it was a medical emergency. "'I said, "'Maybe not. "'I'm not a doctor.' I said, I work at a grocery store with her, and now they're stranded and need help. Petra stammered over, arms rigid, and crossed until she reached us and talked to Brutus. She said, it will be okay, puppy. You have a friend here. He's one of the good ones. When the cop parked behind the dead truck, I handed Brutus over, but wanted to give him a warm bubble bath. I told the officer what I knew, which wasn't much, and she asked if they were on drugs. I said, drugs? I said, I don't think so. I spoke like I was under oath, hand on an invisible Bible. I wanted to say something helpful and true. I said, I'm not a doctor, just some guy who works at the grocery store. The cop told me to go, so I crossed the highway between the traffic that blurred by, kicking up a draft hard enough to knock me down. If you like Adam's work, you can check out his latest collection of poetry, Ask Your Undertaker, from WPA Press at Amazon, or anywhere else you buy books. Check out the link in the episode notes. Closing today, we have Deca's Big Time. A note that all music used in this podcast is either used with permission from the artist or the record company.
1: Look at me, look at me I'm doing things. I'm, do- <clears throat> I'm doing things. Look at me, I'm doing things. I would, I would, I would do anything. Look at me, I'm doing things. Look I'm doing things. I'm doing things. Look, I'm doing things, hey look at me, look, I'm doing things, huh? I'm doing things, yeah, I'm doing things, alright Look at me, look at me I'm doing things, doing things, doing things, big time doing things flat broke, look at me Troubadour My head hurt I'm doing things, doing things, doing things, doing things Rogue stressed, hopeless, fresh out the ocean steps Overslept, woke up in the cold sweat, soaking wet Below the threshold your breath to get the full effect So when sun shines, you can feel them in your solar plex Is it all a dream? Yeah. Is it all in vain? No. Pulling out a brain shot with forceps is painful Think big, aim high, entertain angels Stay gold and the stain fold of the same old He's got a good song, he's got a certain style Every goddess on the planet wants to have his child wow. Thinking out loud, exhaling brown clouds My guns go... Your guns go pow, pow They're not figurative I don't throw stones I aim high and shoot holes in the ozone I got big plans To do big things To spit pristine 16s and live dreams Look at me, look at me The pipe dream I'm doing things My music bangs Look at me, I'm doing things I'm DACA 1 Look at me, look at me doing things, doing things doing things, Big time, doing things Flat bro, look at me the troubadour I'm doing, things, head hurts. I'm doing things, doing things, I'm doing things, doing things. Uh, the sneak thieves trying to snatch what I got. I took the product off the table, put it back in my sock. Take a page out of my book, sign your name on the top. Take the hands you hold the mic with and place it on the chopping block. I'll lop it off, watch it drop and leak fluid. Like your pops old Buick Judas. First, you gotta go through this. You gotta make sure your back's strong. I did everything you glorify in rap songs. Made a fast buck, hubris, bass drums, gassed up by an opportunity. With the snake's tongue, sounds dubious. Catching blown kisses from a cutie's lips, acting out scenes from a movie script. I play a man that overslept, woke up in the cold sweat, soaking wet, got dressed, grabbed his coat and left. By day, he swallows pride and tries not to choke to death. By night, he dreams little dreams in the ocean's depths. Look at me, look at me, I'm, doing things. I'm pressing buttons, look, I'm, doing things. I'm, doing things. Look, I'm doing things, my music bangs. Look at me, mm. look, I'm doing things, Look, huh? I'm doing things, yeah, I'm doing things, yeah. Look at me, look at me, I'm doing things. Doing things, doing things, doing things, big time. Doing things, flat bro, look at me, troubadour. Doing things, my head hurts. I'm doing things, doing things, doing things, doing things.